Welcome to the IVM Podcast Network. Will India's space program remain relevant and competitive in the coming decades? Will Britain give up its last colony in the Indian Ocean? Do Indians conduct enough research on how to engage China? We'll be discussing all of this and more on this week's episode of the Pragati Podcast. We are your hosts Pavan Srinath and Hamsini Hariharan and we get together every two weeks to discuss economics, politics and policy. In the first half of today's episode, Hamsini and I will be discussing events in June that you might have missed. In the second half, I sit down with my fellow colleague Pranay Kotistane and Dr. Alka Acharya, one of India's foremost experts on China, to understand what's lacking in our analysis of China and what we further need to do to meet challenges from our neighbor. So Hamsini, June has been an eventful month, right? It so has... what all are the things that we won't be discussing in this podcast? Well, today's podcast is not covering a number of things. Uh, for example, our presidential elections are going on. Um, our prime minister visited US uh, this week, actually. Uh, there are riots in Gorkha land about wanting a new state. Um, you know, and farm loan waivers are like this infectious virus, like the throat infection bug that's running around in Bangalore, right? So state after state is getting into the idea that they should uh, wave off farm loans. And now the government of India is also thinking about whether it should intervene. True. And then there was that cricket match where people got slapped with sedition charges if they celebrated Pakistan's victory. Um, so it's been an eventful month. Uh, but let's not discuss that. I'm thinking of news that people might have not caught up on amongst all this hullabaloo of what's been running in the newspapers. For example, do you know what is Britain's last colony in the Indian Ocean? No. It's this idyllic little island. Um, it's now where everyone goes for destination weddings from India, apparently. Uh, but it's part of Mauritius. So Mauritius got independence from Britain in 1968. But Britain retained a part of the colony, a part of the island called Chagos. Um, and why Chagos is also important is even though Mauritius got independence in 68, two years before uh, it was granted independence, Britain leased a part of it out to the US, this place called Diego Garcia, which ah. most people don't talk about anymore. Right. Because it's sort of the world's biggest known secret um, in a lot of ways. Diego Garcia is important because it is uh, the United States outpost in the Indian Ocean. It's where it launched attacks during the Persian War in the 90s, um, the War on Terror in 2001, and even the Iraq War. That was the base for the US Air Force during all of this. Along with the, I guess, the... U.S. fleet in the Persian Gulf, Yes, Diego Garcia becomes a major base for operations, right? Yeah. And this is important because when um, UK leased out um, Diego Garcia to the U.S., um, the inhabitants over there were simply evicted. And it is a very small island. It's very thin. It was thinly populated. And around the 1990s, islanders started challenging this, both in UK courts and in international courts. And why all of this is even relevant now is because um, last week, the UNGA called for a resolution on whether uh, the UNGA is the United Nations General Assembly. So they asked countries whether we should defer to the International Court of Justice on whether it's even valid for the US to retain uh, Chagos under international law, which is interesting. Uh, of course, the resolution was passed 
to ask the ICJ for an advisory opinion. I think a number of countries, I think it was 95 countries or so that voted in favor of going for the resolution. Including India? Including India, which is great, uh, because India said that it has a long-standing policy on what it stands on Chagos, which is it, Chagos should go back to Mauritius. I mean, that's coming from a more traditional anti-colonial stance, right? Yes. India has always supported the liberation of uh, imperial colonies, and this is pro- perhaps the last vestige left uh, in the Indian Ocean. If I'm not mistaken, there's even an episode in Yes Minister where they vaguely refer to some British Indian Ocean territory of some sort, which must be this, I'm guessing. Yes, it is this. Right. So, okay. So, you have the UK, which has uh, not surrendered these islands to Mauritius. Yeah. And you have the United States as someone who has taken a lease on one of the islands for Diego Garcia. So, so what's going to happen with Diego Garcia once uh, Mauritius, say, takes it over? Nothing, actually. Okay. Um, so what happened is that the UK leased it to the US in, I think, 1966 for a period of 50 years. The lease was up last year and they extended the lease, which is why this issue is even coming up now. But Mauritius has told the US that nothing is going to really change with Diego Garcia. It's just that the leaser will change in a sense. Right. And probably it's a nice source of revenue for Mauritius. But what's interesting is that the UK said uh, to Mauritius that it would give Chagos back to uh, the country uh, when it was done using it for defense purposes, which is slightly laughable because it sets no timeline whatsoever. And it's almost, yeah, 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 we'll give it to you whenever we're done with it. But you know, when is that going to be? So Britain seems to be quite possessive of island colonies that it has. I think, uh, I mean, there was a reaction in the Falklands in the 80s. I'm not saying nothing, <laughs> anything that nasty will happen uh, over here, but it, it just feels interesting. Yeah, in that sense, it's a repeat of history because if you think of the Falklands War, that was uh, a lot of uh, diversionary war theorists, um, the uh, theorists who believed that when a country is going through a lot of turmoil internally, redirects it for a show of nationalism, which would be interesting considering what Britain is Surgical going through. Surgical strikes. <laughs> but uh, another angle to think about is also what is the ICJ doing you know the icj has lost a lot of credibility even if the IC- icj being the international criminal court of justice yes um so the international court of justice uh, has only an advisory opinion country its rule is not binding right um uh, so even if it says you know britain has to give chagos back to mauritius and britain chooses not to nothing's going to happen for it except for the icj losing credibility because if you think about it a year ago the icj passed um, a verdict saying that uh, 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 about the south china sea where they said that parts of the south china sea belonged to the philippines and china just chose to ignore it so it's also about the credibility of international law Fair enough. So even though the US is not necessarily going to lose out its base in the current scenario, even if uh, Mauritius is able to take over the or take over Chagos, it's still very reluctant, right? I mean, it wants to maintain the status quo. It supported UK in the resolution. Yeah. Uh, so the way the US looks at it, the US voted against uh, the resolution to even take it to the ICJ, because if there's going to be resettlement around Diego Garcia, right, if you're going to have islanders moving, it's going to make security even harder for the US, particularly in an area that's so far away from its own. Security, um, informational security, informational security more than of anything else, intelligence. 
Right. And uh, for what it's worth, Mauritius does have very close strategic relations and financial relations with India. Yes, it does. So India voting in favor of Mauritius seems to be small but significant. It is significant. So I was reading this article by Devarupa Mitra. And, in The uh, Wire? In The Wire. And it was talking about how earlier in the year, the US National Security Advisor and even the US Secretary of State were pushing higher ups um, in the Indian bureaucracy to uh, vote against the resolution and even use India's own clout with Mauritius to uh, take the petition away from the UNGA, uh, which is interesting if you think about it, because there's also the larger US-India relationship in the Indo-Pacific, right? So US is saying, you know, as one of our important friends, maybe you should back us up on this because we share strategic interests in this area. Um, So India backing Mauritius might seem small, might seem predictable to many, but it's very important. And of course, the context of all of this is that uh, the United States, especially under Trump, is sort of no longer the global policeman with a big stick, yes. right? uh, which it has been for a long time. And especially in a maritime situation, somebody needs to provide the public good, which is shipping lane security. Yes. And for better or worse, the United States was providing that for the Indian Ocean and many other parts of the world uh, for the last several decades. So now, uh, Diego Garcia is, of course, one thing. But the question is, who will be the, you know, security provider in the Indian Ocean? And whether, you know, India can sort of manage its own domain without too much need for American intervention. That's true. So while I was nursing a hangover, colonial or otherwise, (laughs) what have I missed out on reading, Pavan? So some events would have definitely um, fallen on your radar. Um, Just about a week ago, we had uh, ISRO sending its latest PSLV off with another number of satellites, 38, some number that pops up every time. Frankly, I'm not too uh, interested in uh, news of the PSLV. So that's like, you know, it's like a train reaching on time, right? I'm not trivializing the achievements of ISRO, but ISRO is doing its job when a regular space vehicle reaches its destination and releases satellites. The bigger deal was uh, on June 5th, uh, India launched its heaviest payload ever using a different launch vehicle called the GSLV Mark III. Wait, this was called Fat Boy? People in (laughs) Indian media (laughs) called it Fat Boy. I mean, some fanboys of Thin Man and Fat Boy from uh, the World War sort of named it. Nobody officially calls it that. Just FYI, uh, ISRO does not call it Mangalyan either. It's called the Mars Orbiter Mission. Uh. My guess is somebody in the government started calling it Mangalyan and then it sort of become the name. (laughs) So ISRO is very clinical about naming its things. Anyway, uh, so uh, ISRO launched this 3000 plus kilogram uh, payload into low Earth orbit. So that's your regular orbit in uh, where most of your communication satellites and mm. imaging satellites operate. So it's about a few hundred kilometers above the Earth's surface. And uh, this was heralded as a big deal for India. So this was a new launch vehicle. So finally, India is a second reliable launch vehicle that can be bigger. So in space program, one of the enabling things that we uh, that are necessary are twofold. One is you want to have the lowest possible cost Mm -hmm. to launch even one kilogram of substance into orbit. Okay, Okay? that cost has to be as low as possible. Mm -hmm. The second is that you should be able to launch big, big payloads, the bigger the payload, the better. 
right? But we've already done the first and now it sounds like so we've done the second. So it's about, we've, we've just about hit 3000 kilograms. Uh, forget NASA, but just SpaceX, the private company uh, run by Elon Musk. Yes, yes. Can currently send about 20,000 kilograms to space, to low okay. Earth orbit. Right. Okay, that So we have a long our... way to go. So that was the thing. So you had two uh, big events happening, one for ISRO and another for SpaceX. So SpaceX has been solving the uh, cost issue by uh, reusability. So the Mm -hmm. idea is that you have many stages of a rocket and uh, these rockets, uh, once they are shot up, they're all destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so basically you have to build it from scratch again. Uh, The American shuttle uh, program was one thing that was the only reusable thing that we have seen in world history, which has been used repeatedly. Okay. But but that was a insanely bloated, expensive thing for mm-hmm. entirely different reasons. True. What SpaceX has, is already doing is it's recovering parts of its rockets. Mm-hmm. So the stage one uh, has been reused successfully in June. So which means that the same uh, rocket stage was used for the second time and it was recovered Okay. Maybe it can be even used for a third time. So what's generally happening with uh, SpaceX is that it's rapidly reducing costs. Okay. At the same time, it's increasing its payload size. That's so, great. And it's what India should be doing? Yes. And the thing is, uh, Indian space exploration imagination, I argue, is not bold enough. So India needs, is, is sort of, we are happy every time a PSLV rocket goes, another satellite gets launched. We celebrate. And uh, I have no problem with celebrations, but it's building in a sense of complacency. So how, what do you mean by bold? What ideas should we have? What lines should we be thinking along? (coughs) So one big thing is India, I think, should just put a lot of resources behind getting human space flight. Hmm. India should put humans in space. Hmm. And the reason this is a big thing is because in order to do this, you need to get so many things right and Hmm. you need to innovate on so many counts. You need to not only have a large payload size that you should be able to deliver, the safety rating has to be much superior. Once it's there, you know, a space uh, vehicle, there'll be orbital maneuvers, there'll be other things that happen. You will need to know how to manage them. You will figure out how to manage human ecos- building human ecosystems in space that can sort of last there for a while. So you will train up astronauts in the process. You will inspire millions and millions of Indians. I mean, imagine if we're uh, sending uh, human beings into space in the next 15 years, maybe. For example, U.R. Rao, the former chairman of ISRO, was also arguing that India should be putting uh, humans into... uh, We should reach Mars in the next 15 years. What that means is that... If you're a kid who's studying in school right now, you could be an astronaut in 15 years. Right? I'm an Indian. jealous. <laughs> right. And, and uh, so that's a big, big motivational thing. I mean, I still remember I was too young. I mean, I was not born when Rakesh Sharma went to space, but Rakesh Sharma was the name when I was growing up in school. Then Kalpana Chawla went to space when I was in school. And so those are big inspirational things. And even if... I mean, not everyone ends up as an astronaut, but you can inspire lots of kids to get into science and engineering and other things and do cool stuff. So the value of a human uh, spaceflight, it captures imagination far more than you just sending a probe into space, right? So it's a big thing that India needs to chew, Uh, not just because it's a big thing that we should do and so on. Also, because if ISRO doesn't do this, it will not be competitive in 20 years. We have this myth that we keep talking about, about how India's space program is very thrifty and, you know, we cost lesser, all these foreign uh, 
countries and others come and launch ve- uh, use our launch vehicles because we are cheaper yeah. no because they use the PSLV and they use ISRO because we are reliable we are good we are competent there's nothing wrong with that but there's this belief that we are somehow cheaper than anyone else there is no basis to prove it uh, maybe we pay lower salaries and you know there are some <laughs> costs that get hidden but apart from that uh, there is no real technological edge that India currently has over other launch vehicle systems so I'm sure we are competent and we are competitive with all others what SpaceX is doing is it's completely different now. Uh, it's taking things to a next stage. And either we just use SpaceX's services and sort of abandon ISRO or use it only to build satellites and stuff, or, you know, we have to get our act together. Wow. And what do you think are the first steps that we go about this? Start laying the groundwork for um, human space missions? or Yeah, um, there's a mission plan that's been in the works for a while. I think maybe it can even be enhanced and it needs to get sort of the prime ministerial approval soon. Hmm. More than that, I think we need to start thinking differently. You know, I'll tell you why uh, SpaceX and all these other companies, even Jeff Bezos of Amazon is uh, has his own space startup and so on. The reason this all started was uh, actually policy and legal history. Hmm. Initially, when people started going to space... Hmm. Countries sort of thought of space the way you think of Antarctica. Okay. It's nobody's property. Uh, you can go do research there. You can set up a small base, but you can't own any territory. Hmm. Right? So there were no property rights defined for, uh, for Antarctica. Space was also initially treated that way. Fundamentally, what has changed is US has said, no, 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 let's stop thinking this way. You still can't own anything in space. But if you can extract resources, whoever extracts them owns them. So it's like fishing. Right? Nobody owns the ocean. You go catch fish, the fish are yours. So now if uh, Elon Musk can put things into the moon, you can mine minerals from the moon and you can use it. Hmm. And uh, what this means is commercial space exploration has been opened up. So you have changed incentives. In India also, we need to start thinking in many, many ways. I mean, why should the space program be equated to ISRO? Can't we have private participation? Can't we have FDI in space? Uh, well, in India, but for space. And so there are lots and lots of these conversations that need to happen. Uh, the good news is, at the very base of this, uh, ISRO's budget has gone up significantly. It's now about 9,000 crores from about 6,000 crores a couple of years ago. It's a welcome first step, but there's a long way to go. Okay, Pavan, maybe one day we'll have a Hindi equivalent of the pale blue dot speech, which inspires millions of Indians to think beyond Why this. not Canada or Tamil? Fair enough. I agree with you. <laughs> That's it for the first half of the Pragati podcast. In the second half, I'll come back with Pranik Hotastani and Dr. Alka Acharya to talk about all things China. Hi, I'm Ambika. And I'm Hoshna. Come journey with us around India as we chat about new and offbeat destinations from secret islands to village cities, give you travel tips and advice, discuss all the yummy and weird food we've sampled and induce some serious wanderlust. So tune in to the Rediscovery Podcast. New episodes out every Monday on the IVM Podcast app or any other podcasting app you like. Hi, welcome back to the Pragati Podcast with me, Hamsini Hariharan. Today, I'm joined by my fellow colleague at the Takshashila Institution, Pranay Kotastane. Pranay is also a contributing writer to Pragati. Hi, Pranay. 
स्टेटमेंट uh so that's why we are discussing this and uh, that's why we have no one better we could we couldn't have had anyone better than uh, dr alka acharya who's one of the foremost experts of china on, in india so dr acharya one thing that's sort of let's get the chinese perspective here first because people always start from what india should do but let's get the chinese perspective here so how important do you think Uber is from the Chinese point of view, or how? What importance does it serve for China to become number one in the world? Well, I think those are two uh, different uh, dimensions to the problem at hand. One is that how important is Uber to China, and how important is it for China to be number one? Uh, although the two will be connected uh, subsequently, but to begin with, I think uh, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative, as it is now. termed uh, earlier on it was one belt one road and i think uh, there has been some degree of receptivity by the chinese to the fact that uh, they cannot appropriate the history of asia and its linkages with europe uh, across history uh, by terming it as one belt one road uh, indeed there are many belts and many roads if i may interrupt wasn't one belt one road also as a result of uh, translation problems or was the chinese uh, meaning exactly one belt one road yes itailu is one belt one road except that the english version now is belt and road but in chinese they still continue to call it itailu so it's still one belt one road uh, but uh, according to them it's it's not one as in the english sense of the term uh, but it's a belt and a road kind of thing but leave that aside the fact is that there has been a shift from officially calling it one belt one road to belt and road and unquestionably this is one of uh, the biggest initiatives that has come out of china directly associated with president xi jinping's vision um, for the world and uh, it's uh, clearly invested with a great deal of significance and importance um, because it would channelize china's increasing economic capacity and the fact that it is one of the biggest economic drivers uh, of the globalized economy uh, into Uh, directions where they themselves are going to be benefiting a lot so it is a combination of political economic strategic objectives and it's all coalescing in this grand vision and if you look at what it is going to try to do 
it's clearly one of the grandest visions uh, i was just wondering when we talk about china's rise we are now uh, talking about over very much linked to china's rise so uh, is this a product of china becoming a superpower or is it the process see it's a uh, i mean if we are saying that through obor china is going to become the number one uh, i think uh, it's uh, it's it's not exactly a direct yes or no but the fact remains that china's rise is now um, accepted okay that it is gradually inching its way to number one status is also quite evident uh, they have set themselves their targets by 2020 they will become the biggest uh, economy in the world by 2050 they hope to surpass them now one belt one road or belt and road is not likely to get accomplished in just two years or four years down the road it is again a huge very very uh, it involves building these roads and networks across continents and across very difficult geographic terrain so in one sense it's going to be taking a lot of time before this connectivity is actually come through and so my contention would be that we are not seeing that obor is the vehicle for china becoming number 1 but that obor is a consequence of china's emergence uh, as a big economic player and and eventually a political uh, power to to contend with so would it be right to say that this is the project that xi jinping wants his legacy to be associated with it of this course. is the grand project for yes. him right yes yes i think through the belt and road initiative xi jinping is hoping to go down in chinese history uh, alongside the great emperors and the great leaders who transformed china uh, for xi jinping it's going to be about how china transformed the world so it's not just about china becoming number 1 and uh, clearly uh, surpassing all other countries in economic wealth and then eventually power but how china's visions have helped to transform the world so it it's at that level it's you know a strategy of really grandiose proportions right so that's the political aspect of it and that's why a lot of energy is being put into it on the economic side as well there is news that is there is excess capacity in china and they are looking for better investments overseas so i think that's how all it is this project finds uh, importance for other stakeholders as well say businesses in china or uh, other state firms yeah true i i think there's no question that the different components that will go in into the making of this belt and road and uh, uh, eventually making it the kind of connectivity of goods and services and uh, other kind of commercial activities that china is obviously looking for Uh, meeting certain of its very critical economic requirements excess capacity is one the shifting out of industries because of sustainable development concerns that no longer china can support the kind of manufacturing that it is does um, the very fact that economically they have to now reach different levels so they have to move from mere manufacturing uh, at the level they are into higher stages so there are a whole set and the fact that they have all this excess capacity of cement and steel so it is killing a lot of birds uh, with uh, uh, and bri let us be uh, also clear it's not just one stone so a lot of birds with a lot of stones and now they all going into this this grand vision of connectivity 
Yeah, so it's more belt one stones, <laughs> right? Okay, so uh, the, so we understood now. So this is a big grand economic project, and it is definitely it has a lot of political implications as well. And this uh, Xi Jinping wants his wants it to be part of his legacy. So now let's come to the Indian aspect, right? So now w- what has India done? India says that we don't we have genuine concerns, and one of the big reasons is because the flagship project of Uber CPEC passes through Indian occu- uh, through Pakistan occupied territory so now uh, let's uh, get to the indian opposition part of it what is india implying by not joining this belt and road forum was what was the signal being sent see officially i think a very clear signal has been sent that because our territorial integrity and sovereignty is Uh, being uh, undermined by this act we will not be part of it um, the other uh, not quite opposition i would say but the other concern that has been voiced at official levels uh, not officially but at official levels in speeches by the foreign secretary for instance or some uh, statements from the foreign ministry spokesman that uh, we have our concerns we have uh, really this is an initiative that china has undertaken and if they want other countries they should to join they should approach them so china should really um, have discussions with us we need more information we have no idea so there are you know what appears from all these uh, statements is that india's concerns are about what are the ulterior motives out here what are the strategic kind of implications of this connectivity and um, so so those are part of it right so fair enough the the basic problem is one of their big project passes through indian territory so there is no other option for india but to oppose it there's and lots of people have already written about it but so here we have a uh, one of uh, india's big neighbors doing this big grand plan so our or our response to that can't be just opposing on a particular stretch of Uh, the project right our response has to be much more than that do you see any articulation coming about what exactly is our indian response beyond opposition to cpec which we know is justified see i think the fact that we have our uh, problems with the way in which the chinese have uh, taken one set of standards about uh, area which they claim as their own particularly arunachal pradesh and preventing developmental projects on that side uh, and on the other side here going ahead with developmental projects uh, where we claim territory so that you know all those things are definitely um, recognizable and understood the question really is that this response is only about the fact that it is passing through territory that we claim in other words we have no other objection other than the fact that it compromises our territorial integrity if that is the case then we should have something more if it is on the other hand the problem that it, apart from the fact that it compromises our territorial integrity that we are actually not very happy about the strategic implications of these roads and so on then our response should actually be pitched at that level that there maybe this should be part of the strategic dialogue what is china's strategic intentions you can't you know my the difficulty that i see is that if you have strategic concerns then they have to be conveyed in a way in which 
you are then reacting to a strategic problem. Uh, at the moment, it just appears that you are having a problem only because of the CPEC uh, and the fact that we don't have enough information and so on and so forth. So I feel that India should be asking or at least putting a point of view which can. After all, we, are, we, we, we say that lots of countries are uncomfortable about it. What kind of articulation of that perspective is happening? Um, it's not it's not very much there in the public domain and so many countries are part of this project so yeah so as my co-host Pawan Srinath once said he said okay so we have an opposition to China building roads in Pakistan control Kashmir fine but what if China wants to invest in roads through Bangalore we don't really have an opposition to that so we should maybe figure out how higher opportunity cost is no see that the, that's why I'm saying that the response really has to be what specifically are you opposed to, Nobor? Mm. If you are saying that we are opposed to OBOR, mm. irrespective of whether the CPEC is there or mm. the fact that they have managed to pull BCIM also within the, the which was BCIM, which predates OBOR, that's also become part of OBOR. So what right. we are saying is, we do, we have problems with Belt and Road. Mm. In which case then, the question of Chinese investment into India and so on, that should be delinked. So, okay, we have a problem with uh, Obor, but China, please come in and um, let's think in terms of how we can invest in building infrastructure within India. The peculiar situation that there is, is that all around us, we will be having infrastructure building activity and it's already happening. It's happening in Sri Lanka, it's happening in Nepal, it's happening with Bangladesh, Pakistan. So all around that is happening. And then we say, according to the point you are making, that okay, China come in and build roads inside. But we will not be part of the... You know, there is a bit of a disconnect hmm. between the kind of position that we are saying about China making investments within India or that we have some partnership with uh, investments, infrastructure investment within India, but no linkage with any of the investment projects if they are part of Belt and Road, just outside Indian territory. Right. One line of thought that has been doing the rounds is that why sh uh, invest? So the big concern is that investment. Why should we lose out on investments from China, right? And one of the arguments that is being made is that, anyways, we have AIIB and uh, the New Development Bank, which is under BRICS. All those are places where India already has a say. So uh, our investments through China won't be affected, even if we. Uh, constantly oppose Obor or we take a really hard stance against it. What do you have to say about that? If I think the Chinese are going to be subsuming more and more and more of this infrastructure development or other connectivity kind of projects within Obor, uh, then we will have uh, to um, be very clear as to how we will distinguish between projects that are part of uh, OBOR, but on which you are still... So, for instance, supposing Nepal were to apply for a uh, for loan for building something which is billed as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, and you are in the bank, um, what will you do? Uh, similarly, if your other neighbors are wanting to build roads, so clearly you will have to take a position on that. In fact, I think what we need to see is to how how much of this is actually going to happen irrespective of what our position is going to be right. and therefore how much of it will be literally uh, affecting us uh, without our either taking a position or doing anything uh, because roads 
are there. I mean, if it's a road is coming right up to your borders, what are you going to say? I'm not going to take that road. I will build my own road. So, you know, there is a bit of a ludicrousness in this whole thing. Yeah. And India has its own, um, you know, desire also about connectivity. Look east and this um, through... Um, uh, through the northeast, we are trying to build into get into a uh, lot of Southeast Asian countries are part of this. Even Japan, with whom we are uh, sharing our apprehensions about this project, even they are looking at what this whole thing is about. So I think what we need to do is at this point, really focus our our energies and examine this proposal uh, in with the seriousness that it demands. Right. It cannot be a kind of a ad hoc a response uh, to certain critical issues, but have this whole open kind of a area where it is going to impinge on you regardless. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, and from, so this is, we talked about the Indian apprehensions, etc. But uh, let's see from the Chinese uh, point of view. India is a big market, right? So I'm sure there is a lot of movement within China as well to get India into this big grand plan that China is making. Do you see any news about that? And what are the moves China is making towards that? At the moment, no news. I mean, the Chinese have just uh, put this out and uh, have uh, sent feelers, uh, very strong feelers to India that they would like India to be part of this. And... Uh, I think the Chinese themselves are in a bit of a bind because if India is not part of this OBOR, a great uh, chunk of the kind of returns or the kind of success that they expect from Belt and Road in South Asia, particularly subcontinent, is going to be, there's going to be a gaping hole. And let's face it, India with its uh, huge middle class, uh, with its burgeoning young uh, population uh, with its growth story unfolding with its capacity is actually what China needs right. so this is a for the Chinese also it's a bit of a frustrating and a baffling situation if India refuses to come on board and I think India also needs to weigh I mean there are a lot of people who are saying we don't need Belt and Road uh, fine I think uh, we can start off with but but then a very uh, I think a very serious cost-benefit analysis must be done. Um, this is, uh, I would say that if we can carefully evaluate the kind of advantages that we can get out of it, yeah. we are desperately trying to get access to Central Asia. We still have not got through Northeast Asia, uh, Northeast India through to Southeast Asia that is still in the making. So many projects are just lying and we are not able to get this whole thing going. So I think... Both sides have to once again come back and uh, address each other's concerns and see how kind, what kind of a wire media can come out of this because it can be a win-win right. situation. That's great. So, uh, let's do some crystal gazing here. So, how do you see this project? Uh, how do you see India's response changing over this project? Do you think there will be a revaluation or an assessment now? Actually, it should have happened much before. But now that uh, this forum has already happened, not attending the forum does not necessarily mean that India is, cannot be a part of OBR, right? So how do you see this going ahead? Do you have any uh, sense of how this will flow? See, for now, it seems that uh, a certain kind of... Uh, negative uh, response uh, has has uh, 
is, is crystallizing right. that there is a great deal of suspicion um, there is a great deal of mistrust that is voiced in the kind of uh, reactions we've seen um, so so it's more about the strategic implications of uh, these uh, communication networks and uh, the kind of uh, channels that are sought to be established now what we need to figure out is whether not being part of the belt and road would eventually help us address those long term strategic consequences does it actually make uh, uh, make for us being better prepared uh, by not joining or does it make uh, uh, does it, does it actually help us in dealing with a situation that is likely to unfold over the next 5 to 7 years uh, as far as the chinese presence in and around and all these networks are concerned so by so, so essentially what i'm saying is that by not being part of it you can of course make your opposition you can voice your concerns you can raise legitimate worries and you can of course that whole cpec uh, issue but this is not a project to stop because of all these legitimate legitimate concerns yes strategic uh, worries yes but it's going to happen yes. so do you want to at least be part of the discourse and keep those concerns alive or watch the way in which this whole agenda that the chinese are now unfolding uh, is going to take shape uh, so you are really out of the shaping of this very important strategic uh, right yeah, exactly and because india is such a big economy and if, by its own right it can be a pole which can either determine how other countries react to belt and road initiative as well and that's why i think india's response is important and its response can't be just based on one particular uh, uh, territorial integrity problem which is all genuine but the response has to include no, much more yeah you know the point is that all your neighbors are actually uh, excited by the opportunity it offers uh, so if you are saying that many countries have concerns then i think there should be an attempt to find out what the nature of that concern is is it the same as yours because ultimately the position that you will take on belt and road or that you will try and shape some kind of a common position uh, it the interests have to gel and if my worries about this road and say country x's worries about the road have to ultimately come together for us to take a common position uh, so as i said that we share a lot of these anxieties along with japan but japan sent a representative to find out what's happening the americans sent european sent of course there are going to be questions we already see that the europeans were raising some questions they were not part of the signing and all but i don't think the chinese have not anticipated this and this was one attempt to see what are the kind of concerns that other countries have and they will try to weave it into it because this is too important for them to you know just bulldoze it they they will it's going to fail if they don't have on board the majority of the countries and what they're doing is working their way to getting the support of the maximum number of countries so india really has to now see uh, where it stands uh, as far as this 
this juggernaut is going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point to end this podcast. But what fascinates me is that just a year back we were discussing about TPP and uh, the in American presence in Asia Pacific, Indo Pacific, and now it's all out. The terms are being set by China, and we are discussing Belt and Road Initiatives twice in Pragati podcast as well. <laughs> so that just shows the importance as well. Thanks a lot, Doctor. Uh, Thank Chari. you, Doctor. All right, that's our show for today. You can find new episodes of the Pragati Podcast every fortnight on the IVM Podcast app or any other podcasting app you prefer, and of course on thinkpragati.com. Excuse me, Bhaiya. Excuse me. Bolle, Madam. Menu me kya hai? Menu me seen and seen hai. Podcast hai, on course hai, Cyrus hai, hai, Made in India, Rediscovery Project, Empowering Series, Sex Wax hai, IVM Likes hai, Simplified hai, Keeping It Queer hai, Things and Destinations hai, My Neighbor Zuckerberg hai, or The Fan Garage hai. Aapko kya chahiye hai? Uh, ek baar repeat kar denge kya? Repeat, repeat nahi karta hum. Aap jao, IVMPodcast.com pe aur suno ye sab. Ya fir download karo unka app. Sab aapke ungliyo pe.